I'm not necessarily a natural risk taker, but I do think that's really important in the association space to take risks, to try new things, to be innovative. They're not all going to work, but embrace risk, be courageous. If you're going to fail, fail fast. Some great association leadership advice from our guests today and a quick preview of what's to come on this episode of BSAE Connections, an original podcast series focused on the interconnectivity of Virginia's association community. Produced by the Virginia Society of Association Executives. I'm Colby Horton, and I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Frank Humata. Hi, Frank. Hey, Colby. You know, Frank, I think the majority of our listeners probably stumbled into the association world through a different career path. I mean, that's our story, and it's the story of our guest today. But like so many in this space, our guest is fully committed to this industry, her members, her colleagues, and her network. And a lot of that comes from involvement in VSAE. You're right, Colby. And we heard our last episode from two members of the Association of Leadership Virginia class of 2023. And it's clear that the strength of that program lies from learning from others, listening to how others combat challenges, develop programs for growth, or take time for themselves. And our guest today puts quite a bit of stake into ALV and loves to share her experience with the program. So today we're going to talk about leadership, about mentorship, the importance of inspiring the next generation, the future of DEI and the association space, and why we should all focus on our well-being. So who do we have on our show today, Frank? Today we're joined by Susan Park, the Executive Director of the Coastal and Estuarine Research Foundation. With over 15 years of professional experience, Susan has a wide-ranging expertise in environmental issues, primarily in coastal and marine topics such as marine ecology, aquatic invasive species, fisheries and aquaculture, sea level rise and climate change adaptation, and coastal hazards. She's passionate about mentoring students in career development and in building their own professional skills such as science communication, outreach, networking, and translation of science to management. There's obviously a lot to discuss today, so let's connect with Susan Park. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. Thanks. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you, and we're not going to waste any time because I'm sure our listeners want to learn about your career journey in the association space. So where did it start? Oh, geez. Well, it's not the path I expected to take. I think a lot of folks say that in the association space, it's not a path they chose, but it kind of fell into I was looking for a new position after having moved and not enjoying the commute. I've been a member of the Coastal and Estuarine Research Federation or SURF for forever. And the opening came up for the executive director position. I thought I've been a member. I love the organization. I've done similar work in sort of that sort of management administrative sphere. Let's give it a shot. Really having no idea what it meant to be an association executive. So I've been very fortunate, had uh, really supportive staff and volunteers and mentors. And actually, VSAE has been a huge help in helping me figure out exactly what it means to be an association executive. Yeah. So that's how I landed in this spot. I think a lot of what you just discussed, we're going to talk more about as this podcast episode progresses. I want to talk a little bit about your current association. How many people do you have working within the association right now? So actually, it's only me. I'm the only official employee. We have an AMC that's based out in Seattle. 
So we are a small association. I'm very fortunate that recently uh, we received a grant to hire another person. So hopefully we will be having somebody on board full time pretty soon. You are the epitome of a small staff association. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing small staff associations right now? We have always been a very volunteer-driven organization. Obviously, I couldn't do it all myself, even with the superb AMC that I work with. So the volunteers do a lot. And I think you've been hearing this, I'm sure, from other associations The volunteers are burned out. They're all taking on a lot more than they used to, and it's a lot harder for them. So for us, I think it's really a capacity issue. I have the best volunteers in the world. My members are super loyal and dedicated, but it's just been harder and harder to get enough volunteers to do what we want to do. And especially now we just went through a new strategic planning process. We have all these great new ideas, and it's going to be hard to really get them implemented considering we know how busy all of our volunteers are. Susan, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What would you say are your top three tips for association executives? I'm going to cheat a little bit on this one because I've been very fortunate through VSAE and through other organizations to work with a lot of association executives with a lot more experience than I have. And so I actually have a sticky note on my wall of It's actually four sayings that I've heard from these folks that I think about all the time when I'm doing my work. And the first one I think we hear a lot is be selfless. I think it's really important for association executives to really be servant leaders and to, you know, work hard to make everybody else look good. I think that's really one of the most important things. So be selfless is one. Second one that I have a hard time with is embrace risk. I'm not necessarily a natural risk taker, but I do think that's really important in the association space to take risks, to try new things, to be innovative. They're not all going to work, but embrace risk, be courageous. If you're going to fail, fail fast. So I like that one a lot. Um, I like the reminder that I've been told a lot is that you are the future of your industry. So move the future of the field forward. Always be thinking about what the next step is in the field and be prepared for that work towards that. And then I think this is true in life and in work. Always take the high road. Uh, Integrity is really important in your position. Always being honest and having respect of others as an association executive is important. So always think about your integrity and always take the high road. So those are the four things that I have held on to that I've heard from others. Love it. Thanks for sharing that. And what would you say the importance of being a part of the BSAE community is and what keeps you involved? Oh, well, like I said, when I started this position, I had no idea what I was getting into. I don't even think, even though I was a member of associations, I don't think I knew what an association was when I took this job. So if it wasn't for BSAE, I really wouldn't know some of the basics. One of the things that I was really lucky when I joined BSAE was that they just started Association Leadership Virginia, and I was in their first class. And I learned so much just about the basics of what it means to run an association through that program. And that really got me excited then to take on the CAE, which I did right after, and then joined the VSAE board right after. And I'm constantly learning from the uh, other folks at VSAE. It has been a lifesaver for me in this job. Yeah, I love that you brought up 
the Association Leadership Virginia. You know, on our last episode, we talked to two of the cohorts from this year's class. You kind of brushed on it, but what's the one takeaway you received from ALV? There's so many takeaways. You're going to make me choose one. <laughs> like picking your favorite kid. <laughs> exactly. I think one of the things that I learned is that we have so much to learn from each other. It's interesting because ALB in my class and in all the classes have been a mix. Some are, are really, you know, early career folks. Some have been in the association world for a long time, but wanted to take the next step. Some are like me who just stepped into the association world. And I just learned so much from the others in my cohort and I'm continuing to learn from the new ALV folks. So I think that's the take home is that I just have so much to learn from others in the leadership space. Excellent. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot you can share with those folks as well, which is another, another direction we could go here. But, you know, if we pull the curtain back a little bit, just to let our listeners know, we do have a, a decent conversation with our guests before we actually do this recording. And during that pre-show, we talked a little bit about your passions and I really loved the direction the conversation went there. So I'm, I'm going to ask you here, because I think our listeners need to hear it. What are you passionate about? Ooh, well, the thing that gets me up in the morning is thinking about the next generation of leaders in the coastal and estuarine research and management fields. So the, the folks that are going to be the ones that are really helping us clean up the Chesapeake Bay or... Um, deal with climate change um, in coastal communities, they really inspire me and wanting to help them is really what gets me motivated every day. And in particular, the thing that I've been working a lot on with SURF is issues of DEI around coastal and estuarine sector. Those two things intersect in that our discipline is very lacking in diversity. So ocean science is one of the least diverse fields in science as a whole. And I'm sure you've heard that science is not a very diverse field. But if you look at the communities that we work in, the coastal communities, they tend to be very diverse. I mean, there tend to be a lot of environmental justice, social justice issues in those communities. And if we want to be able to really address the problems, like, you know, we're here in Virginia and you hear about sea level rise and coastal flooding all the time, we need to be able to really understand those issues and to do that, we really need to be coming from those communities and understanding those communities. So a real passion of mine is to inspire the next generation of marine scientists, but from those underrepresented groups to follow this career path and help us with those challenges and opportunities in the coastal zone. That's great. So I want to I break down those passions into two paths here. First, when we're talking about the young or the emerging professionals and exposing them to the industry. The same thing can happen on the association side and every single association exec is challenged with doing that. And I believe mentorship is a big piece of that story. So how important is mentorship for young and emerging professionals, not only in your industry, but in the association space as a whole? Because I think we're all challenged with, again, advancing those young professionals and preparing them for leadership roles within the organization in the future. Yeah, I think that mentorship is something that everyone talks about as important, but isn't necessarily clearly stated or pushed as much as I think it should be. 
I know I never sought out mentors throughout my career. I am lucky to have had some very good ones. And so it's sort of one of my missions to reach out to those young and early career professionals and say, you know, mentorship really is important and here's why. And a lot of it is learning things that you not you don't necessarily learn on the job or in school or things like that. They're tips, they're career advice, or that's life advice that is not sort of formal education. And I think that's really important. And learning about different career paths that maybe you didn't know about or learning advice from folks who have made mistakes, don't make the same mistake that I did. Those are so many important life lessons are learned there in, in a much more informal environment than there you would have, say, in school or with a supervisor. And mentorship doesn't have to be, you know, this very formal relationship. I heard this term the other day, mini mentoring moments. You never know when you might go up to somebody and give them just a, a little bit of advice or encouragement, and that could change somebody's life career path immensely. So I just really try to encourage folks to not be shy, to reach out to somebody who you're interested in, ask questions, and more often than not, they're going to be more than happy to provide any sort of advice, encouragement, or help that they can. And I like what you were saying, too, to also from a mentor standpoint, to be proactive and to look out for those folks who may need a little extra help, but could be too shy or introverted to ask for the help. So I think that the best leaders, the best mentors out there can recognize when someone might need a, a little extra push or a little extra advice. So that proactiveness, I think, is really important, too. So shifting to the DEI standpoint, you know, obviously DEI has become on the forefront within many industries. Associations, I think, are kind of ahead of the game there. Where do you see the future of DEI in the association space? As I was talking before about one of the leadership tips that I have about moving the field forward, I think that's one of the great things that associations can do is lead by example. And so we really think about that a lot with our DEI initiatives is how can we be the example for our field so that our members might take home what we do to their own institutions, to their businesses, when they're working with their students or employees. So we've really tried to integrate DEI in everything we do. It's not just about, say, recruiting new members from underrepresented groups. That's important, but if you bring them to an association or a conference or a meeting that is unwelcoming, then you're, you're actually doing a disservice to the field. So that's one example is while we try very hard to recruit diverse students and young members to our association, we also try to make sure that we are incredibly safe, welcoming, and inclusive. So we do a lot at our conference to make sure that there's a clear code of conduct, for example, that we are talking about being welcoming and inclusive all the time. We have a clear code of ethics for our members and that we are training our leaders, our current members, our senior members to also think very carefully about DEI and what they do. So they're the ones that have the power to say change the association, to change their home organization. And so it's not just about you know one little thing, holistically thinking about how you can change the culture to be more welcoming and inclusive. And that's how really DEI can be successful. And hopefully that's something our members take home with them and that, you know, slowly, step by step, we can change the field as a whole. 
leading by example. I think that's really important. Shifting gears slightly, I think well-being and good mental health is very important today. I take that back. It's always been important. I just think it's kind of at the forefront today. So when you're having a bad day, what do you do? Um, I think the important thing is to acknowledge that you're having a bad day. I think a lot of people, mental health is still, there's a stigma around that. People are afraid to admit they're having a bad day. People are, are afraid to admit that they might be struggling. So again, leading by example, I try to just be honest and say, I'm having a bad day. Today is not the day. I'm going to walk away. Tomorrow hopefully will be a better day. And I've said that to my staff, you know, you're having a bad day. That's fine. This does not need to happen today. Go home, come back tomorrow. Hopefully things will be better. So just being honest with yourself and then also having that support system. You know, hopefully you've got that friend, that supervisor that will do that for you, right? You're having a bad day. Everybody has a bad day. It's okay. You know, that happened to me actually the other day during a board meeting. I wasn't feeling well. So it was less of a mental health issue, but a physical health issue. But I'm still feeling bad about that because I'm in a board meeting. I'm supposed to be basically running it. And I looked over at my president and I said, I need a minute. And she said, that's fine. I gotcha. I walked away, came back a couple hours later, felt better. And she was like, no problem. Really glad you said something. And, you know, things happen. Don't feel bad about it. You know, try to surround yourself with people like that. So if you're having a bad day, you feel comfortable enough to be able to say, I'm having a bad day. Well, when I'm having a bad day, someone that helps me a lot is, is my dog. And I know all of us in this podcast have our own fur babies. And, and Susan, could you share a little bit more about yours? And on top of that, the volunteer work you do in the pet community. Sure. Yes. Uh, spending time with the fur babies does make me feel a lot better. <laughs> Currently, I have four, two cats, two dogs. Max and Jackson are the cats. Uh, Reese is our big 70-pound pit bull mix. And May is our newest addition. She's a senior She's laying next to me. She is blind and deaf and cute as a button. I just kind of have a special spot for those that are maybe have special needs. So that's my May. I've always loved animals. This actually started when I was in graduate school. I lived in a fairly rural area and we had stray cats living in the neighborhood and they kept having kittens under my house and so I kept finding these kittens and finding them homes and finally I was like this is getting out of hand so I started to work with a local rescue group and ever since then 20 odd years later wherever I end up living I try to volunteer with a local animal rescue group and right now I'm working for uh, Richmond Animal Care and Control which is the city's animal shelter and it's a very rewarding experience. You know, I love this part of the podcast where we learn a little bit more about our guests. Thank you for sharing uh, about your fur babies. But we also understand that you're a world traveler as well. Where was your favorite trip and what's still on your bucket list? Oh, favorite trip is hard. I did have this incredible experience when I was in graduate school. I wish they still did this, but I was able to get a round trip ticket to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia but at the time, if you got a round-trip ticket, you could also then fly anywhere Malaysia Air flew from Kuala Lumpur within that same period. So I, I went to Kuala Lumpur, and then within the two weeks that I was over there, I also went to Singapore, 
Kota Kunabalu, which is in on Borneo, uh, Phuket, Bangkok, basically all over East and Southeast Asia. It was a crazy trip. I went with my best friend. I ate amazing food, saw amazing things. I don't think you could beat that. That was just a truly incredible experience, definitely life-changing. And I love that part of the world. So I would go back in a heartbeat. But right now, bucket list is Africa. I think Tanzania is on the top of my list to do the whole safari thing. But I actually love West African food. So Ghana is way up on my list as well. And speaking of food, you're you're pretty solid go-to when it comes to restaurant recommendations. So if you had to name the best restaurant in Virginia, where would that be? And what dish makes it so popular or appealing to you? That also is like picking your favorite child. I don't know. <laughs> to me, it's so circumstantial. You know, sometimes you want that really elevated experience. But most of the time for me, I want that hole in the wall. And this isn't quite the right answer, but my favorite restaurant recently closed during the pandemic. Uh, it was called Mama Zoo. I actually have a framed picture of it. That's how much I'm, how sad I am that it closed. And it was this Italian restaurant, little hole in the wall. Literally, the the walls were wavy from being, you know, just warped and old. And the the staff were known for being kind of surly, but the food was amazing. The portions were huge. I love seafood and they would do like this amazing, you know, whole baked fish. And I miss that place so much. They have a sister restaurant called Edo's Squid in Richmond. It's almost as good, but nothing is Mama Zoo's. Well, Susan, I know you like to cook as well. So what would you say is your signature dish? Ooh, I don't know that I have a signature dish. I'm not, um, I'm kind of a throw together simple kind of person. I love grilling. So I'm really excited about this time of year. I love grilling fish tacos. So that's maybe the go-to thing when I can't think of anything else. Well, Susan, we appreciate the conversation today. We appreciate you going a little bit outside your comfort zone and talking to us and our listeners. So thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of VSAE Connections. Join us each month as we continue our conversations with VSAE members about life, work, and the communities they serve. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And on behalf of VSAE, I'm Colby Horton with Frank Kumata. Thanks for listening. See you next time.